0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind
1: from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name
1: is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I just have one thing to say, and that is remember Highland.
0: Ah, yes. Your home.
1: (laughs) 500 years ago on the planet Zeist.
0: Yes, uh, you were referring, uh, of course, to the film Highlander 2, one of the most... uh, Wait, uh, you're
1: forgetting the most important part of the title... Highlander Two:
0: The Quickening. Oh, I've lost track of all the subtitles for this film. Uh, There's like, because it's like, there's Highlander Two: The Quickening: The Renegade Edition. I mean, (laughs) there've been so many cuts of this uh, over uh, over time. Uh, But for the most part, in this episode, we're getting back to the theatrical cut of Highlander Two. We're talking about Highlander Two as presumably somebody saw in the theater when it came out, and then a lot of us saw on VHS. Uh, when it hit our local video rental stores.
1: Now, we've been threatening to do this episode on Highlander 2. Nate, n- not just threatening, we've been promising yes. to do it for probably over a year now. And people, some people say, what are you talking about? Why would you do that? And other people say, when is the Highlander 2 episode coming? So that latter group, you're about to be very happy. That former group, here we are, and you're going to listen, and you're going to like it. Well, we're going to catch you up to speed on what (laughs) Highlander 1 was all
0: about, what Highlander 2 was seemingly about. And there is going to be discussion of science in this episode. There is a lot of science to discuss. And in a way, this allows us to tackle at least a couple of subjects that we've just never covered on the show before but are, are certainly of scientific interest. But before we get into all of that, let's just go ahead and have a taste from the original theatrical trailer for Highlander 2, taste the quickening. Let's
1: have some fun. In all their centuries on earth, nothing could have prepared them for the quickening. Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery, Highlander 2, the
0: quickening. All right. Well, it sounds intriguing. Perhaps uh, everyone out there can understand a little bit uh, uh, why there was some excitement about this film for for fans of the original Highlander.
1: Now, I will say as concerns uh, fandom of the original Highlander, the original Highlander is a very fun movie, but it is also also a very bad movie. Uh, Well, it is. It is. I, I definitely would argue that the the film is far
0: sillier than a lot of people remember. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I loved it when I saw it in, uh, god goodness, early junior high or whenever I saw uh-huh. Highlander for the first time. I was just like, this is amazing. It's, you know, it's it's fantasy. It's... It's, it's kind of historical. It has uh, all these – It's got uh, wrestling. It's Well, it, 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 I don't think I was really a fan of wrestling at the time. So oh. I was just kind of – I, I kind of glossed over that aspect of it. I didn't know who any of those guys were. But but I knew who the other guys were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sean Connery. And then there's this weird uh, Christopher Lambert or Lambert character. Right. And then the Kurgan. Uh, played by Clancy Brown. It just had a, just so much uh, scene-chewing energy in this
1: film. Uh-huh. And then a magnificent score by Queen. The Queen really ties it all together, but it's also just that bloodbath of ridiculous acting that sells the movie. You've got Christopher Lambert or uh, Christophe Lambert mm-hmm. who is doing in, in Highlander 1 and 2, both of which he, he kind of does like a Peter Lorre sort of thing. He's yes. a little bit like, yes, I'm a Highlander. and then, He's basically Peter Laurie's
0: uh, handsome younger brother. Yes, that's that's the kind of vibe I always get off of
1: it. But so let's let's rehash who the characters are versus the accents. So you've got. Uh, Christophe Lambert plays a Scotsman, and he's got a French accent. Yeah, that's Connor McLeod. Right, Sean Connery plays a Spanish Egyptian person, but he's got a Scottish accent. Yep, that's Ramirez. Seems a little backwards, but then you've got Clancy Brown, who plays like a like a Central Asian Russian kind of guy, but mm-hmm. he has an American accent. Yes, uh, this is definitely one of those areas
0: of uh, of, of Highlander uh, mythology that it it. It doesn't uh, it doesn't pay off to think too hard about it. Uh, it gets confusing rather quickly. But let me just go ahead and rehash what the basic plot is for Highlander one, in case you haven't seen it before or you've never seen it at all. Okay. So first of all, the film came out in 1986. Big year for genre films. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you were to make a like top ten genre films of 86. I don't even know that a Highlander would make the cut. There were just so many great flicks that came out that year. Is that the year of aliens? Yeah. Uh, that was the year of you, too. I think you, I you think entered the world uh, that year. Maybe that's If I recall correctly. <laughs> so um, the, in this movie, certain humans are randomly or seemingly randomly born imbued with this immortal energy, this kind of immortal fire. And that fire can only be snuffed out if they're just outright decapitated. And then that fire, that that immortal energy can be absorbed by another immortal.
1: Okay, so they're invincible except for decapitation. Right. And they run around decapitating each other. Right.
0: Hunting each other out, kind of sensing each other's presence. They're like playing their own game. And so th- they have the, these magical beings. They battle across the ages. And the idea is that they're going to keep doing this. They're going to keep hunting each other down and engaging in sword fights. And, and one of them wins and absorbs all the energy. They're going to keep doing this until they're very very few left on the planet. Mm -hmm. And then those few remaining individuals are going to go to some location on the earth, ends up being New York City. Uh And this is going to be the gathering where the final immortals duke it out. There can be only one left at the end. And that final... Immortal is going to have all this collected energy of all those deceased immortals. And in doing so, he's going to win the prize, the complete allotment of the immortal fire. that will presumably allow them to, you know, the wield godlike power, achieve great and terrible things depending on their individual temperament.
1: This is like a really awesome idea for a fantasy movie that would be dreamt up by a high school sophomore.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's there is something Wonderful about it, I have to say. Like the idea of, of, and I do think that there is perhaps a deeper subtext too that uh, that the, the, the screenwriter, especially director Russell McKay, um, was perhaps getting into. Like there's this feeling of like outsider individuals, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to you know to find each other and 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 uh, and, and battling for how they're perceived by the world. Yeah, uh, I, I would love to see somebody do. Like deeper read, some sort of a film theory, um, uh, LGBTQ uh, reading of Highlander. Yeah, um, I myself am not a film theorist, uh, but but I would love to to read the work of
1: somebody who is on this matter. Yeah, I could see that there's some subtext like that there, especially in the first movie. But so you've got literally the character uh, Christophe Lambert with his mm-hmm. French accent plays the Scottish Highlander Connor MacLeod. Right. Right, he's Connor. He's uh, he
0: is our our hero, and uh, he we we, we we get flashbacks from the present. You know, we, we yeah. find out uh, this is how he learned that he was immortal, and then he encounters. Uh, First the Kurgan, who is out to just decimate him and absorb his energy, but that's doesn't Clancy to, Brown, right? And then he runs into Sean Connery's Ramirez character, who you know, schools him in the ways of the immortal. He's like, "This is how we operate. This is what we do. This uh-huh. is what you need to be careful about. This is who you need to uh, beware of." And you know, prepares him. Uh, but then the Kurgan comes along and kills Ramirez. And uh, we, anyway, we, we get to the end of the film. The inevitable final showdown is between Connor McLeod and the Kurgan. They have a ridiculous sword fight mm-hmm. that goes on forever, lots of sparks. Right. I mean Russell McKay was was and is one of the, the great music video directors of the nineteen eighties. Right. Wild Boys. Wild Boys from Duran Duran. I think he did he did multiple uh Duran Duran videos. He did Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh
1: really? Yeah. Uh,
0: so he, he has this he always had this this fantastic visual flair, and it is in full uh, effect
1: in Highlander. I would say that his music video of the Wild Boys, for me, somehow slightly prefigures the aesthetics of the Mad Max Fury Road War Boys. Yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I could see that being the case. They're, they're kind of like violence swinging about in a in a grimy industrial future. Absolutely. So
0: anyway, spoilers for Highlander 1. He wins. Connor wins. Okay. Spares the world a, a terrible fate at the hands of the Kurgan, and we're told that he gains the ability to read people's thoughts around the world. Oh, it's, okay. It's kind of tacked on. You know, it's, Certainly, the exact nature of the prize is kind of an afterthought, because the movie <laughs> is ultimately not about that. It's, it's about... It's about style. It's style over substance, yeah. and it's a fabulous style. Uh, but yeah, when at the end you have to realize, oh yeah, he's supposed to win something. What is it? Uh, well, now he's psychic and I, he can
1: connect people. I completely forgot that element. All I remember about the end is like explosions and Queen.
0: Yes, and ultimately, like that's that's all you need. It has to Queen make, plays? You're, yeah. yeah, fabulous, fabulous soundtrack. Wonderful explosions. Uh, some goofy fun. Some very some some nice dramatic moments and some very charismatic performances. You know, we'll spend a little bit of time uh, having fun with Sean Connery, <laughs> but, but Sean Connery was great in Highlander 1. Like, he, is, he was at, like, peak – silver fox charisma level uh-huh. uh, and uh, and he's just
1: a joy to watch in that film oh he's the perfect charismatic yet silly character actor
0: yeah and it was, it was well balanced and you know the kurgan was appro- appropriately fearsome uh-huh. uh and everything i feel like highlander one is, is ultimately a well-balanced cocktail
1: yeah uh right. it is it is a silly but entertaining stupid movie
0: Yes, absolutely, and it ties everything up at the end. Yes, uh, at the end of Highlander One, there's no reason to do uh, a sequel. There's no reason to do, um, uh, you know, a, a, a two animated films, an animated TV show, show 119 episodes of Highlander the series, <laughs> 22 episodes of Highlander the Raven, the which Raven. I've never seen. <laughs>
1: I've never
0: even heard of that. And four additional live action sequels as well. So obviously. The we we, we no, nobody can get enough Highlander after it's done.
1: <laughs> Quoth the Kerrigan, "Nevermore."
0: <laughs> I'm to understand the Raven is uh, like a, an, an an immortal's cop show, basically. <laughs> um, but I, I've never seen it, so I can't really vouch for it. But the, the TV show I watched a little of, and that was that was that was pretty good at times.
1: That's a great genre direction to take any. Previously existing genre franchise. Like you go from scanners to scanner cop.
0: Yeah. Well, it. It's a more sensible move. Well, the, the TV series was a more sensible move because they said, let's not try and pick up afterwards. Let's just do uh, a new character with lots of flashbacks. Each episode is uh, a mix of uh, coming to terms with old trauma and old enemies or old friends and then, um, and then and then hammering it out in the present, or you know, sword fighting it out in the present. But that's not what they did for Highlander 2. The sequel, which comes out came out in 1991, continues where the first film left off. Uh, And and that's an ambitious task to begin with, uh, especially if you insist on featuring Sean Connery in it, which uh, if if what I was reading was correct, that was uh, Lambert's insistence.
1: (laughs) You can't see it at home, but I'm rubbing my fingers together in the money signal, the international Mm -hmm. gesture for money. Of course, Sean Connery is going to want millions to come and reprise his role as Ramirez in this film. Uh, And it especially doesn't make sense because he was just conclusively murdered in the first movie. Oh, yeah. He's been dead for centuries Uh in the first film. Uh, Uh, But they said, all right, we got to bring him back. Okay. If you read a lot about the production of this movie, it seems like uh, the creative decisions about it were largely very investor driven. Right. So there were some sort of like money dudes who were making a lot of the calls about what the movie would contain and be about.
0: Right. And and then I think. It seems like a lot of creative decisions ended up being made for the wrong reasons. Yes, like uh, I, I, I did read that Lambert was like, "Yeah, you got to bring Connery on. He was great. Uh, we had a great time. Mm-hmm. He should be in the sequel." <laughs> but even though he died, you know, and then I'm sure the uh, industry folks were like, "Yeah, Connery's a bankable star. Let's get him in there." So, th- in order to continue the story of Highlander, it is necessary then to expand the my- mythology. Okay, because again, it was all tied up in a neat little bow. Uh, there's no, there's nothing left to continue. So they decided to to come up with a, an, an, a twist, okay. a new way that we can expand Highlander into a sequel. And that twist was that the immortals are aliens.
1: <laughs> it's so good. They should have just gone with Highlander Cop, <laughs> but they didn't. Instead, they went with aliens. Yeah, and you know, I and I ultimately
0: think it's not a bad idea. It gets a bum rap because most people hated Highlander too. But if, if you got to come up with something why not aliens? Why not them being beings from another world? And it's right there in the Queen theme song. Here we are, princes of the universe. Not princes of the earth, princes of the universe.
1: Okay, I can see you there. I mean, it all depends on how it's handled, right? But (laughs) I think part of the reason people react with such uh, incredulity to the sudden revelation that they're all aliens is literally just the way it's introduced in the film. So we're talking about the original Highlander 2, The Quickening, the theatrical cut. This Mm -hmm. has been, butchered and edited out of these re-releases that you can get in digital form and on DVD and stuff today which are now they, they remove references to the alien planet. Right. Uh, but so the way it's introduced is you've got Christopher Lambert uh, uh, Lambert is in old man makeup sitting at an opera and suddenly the camera just like zooms in on him while fans are blowing his hair and he looks confused and you get voiceover from Sean Connery saying remember Highlander your home the planet Zeist and then it it cuts to this flashback, and he's going, yes, I remember Zeist. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's impossible not to
0: laugh while watching this. So the basic idea that is then uh, presented early on in Highlander 2, uh, in the theatrical cut anyway, is that the immortals of Earth— uh, we're all exiled immortals from another world, uh-huh. the planet Zeist, following a failed rebellion. And the rebels uh, here, the, the, the basically the idea is instead of being put to death, they're sent to Earth and they have to battle each other across time till only one remains. And then the winner will have the choice between staying on Earth and growing old or returning to Zeist and becoming immortal again. Uh, so
1: I know <laughs> that's confusing. The, the first one was contrived. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot that, that doesn't work with that that concept, but but I don't know. I I still kind of like it. Sure. Uh, exiled Immortals from Another World. Fine. Uh, in the more recent cuts of it that you'll find, including one that was at least recently on Amazon Prime, they changed it from Exiles from Another World to Exiles from the distant past. So in, so <laughs> if someone rebels against them, instead of sending them to another planet, they send them far into the future. We're going to
1: punish you by sending you to a time with indoor plumbing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, don't send me to a time after penicillin. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's <laughs> apparently what they
0: did. Um, so uh, for my money, there there are some positives about the film. OK. Just to run through real, really quickly. Um, and besides the obvious being that I enjoy watching uh, bad films, uh, first of all, I would say that it was at least ambitious enough to expand and take a sci-fi twist on the original film rather than just redoing it, which is you know often the way you do a sequel. You're just like, all right, do it again except bigger. And they didn't do that. Uh, I will say that Russell McKay created an interesting sci-fi noir look for much of the film.
1: Yeah, a couple of the sets are really good.
0: Yeah, there's especially the you know the very Blade Runner esque. Uh, you know, kind of Blade Runner with more Casablanca uh, Uh heaped on top and then hoverboards and swords.
1: Uh, I think these were the sets that were built earlier in the production. I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the stories about the production is that the movie was made in Argentina. They were like lured there because it was like, hey, it's much cheaper to make a movie here. You can build elaborate sets and all that for half the cost. So they went there and then suddenly there was was an economic crisis in Argentina while they were filming the movie. There was like hyperinflation and then they, they didn't have any money to finish the movie with
0: yeah so so yeah i guess some of the these the scenes and some of the sets look better than others but but certainly the sequence where the assassins from the, the future show up to fight old connor uh-huh. uh that sequence is a lot of fun uh, I, I enjoyed that one um there's also some goofy scenes with ramirez uh, buying a suit and watching a flight safety video after That's he comes back
1: from the dead highlight of the film is just uh, sean connery's hijinks in future scotland yeah and then there's – yeah, that there's that uh, – in addition to that flight safety video,
0: there's also – and you only find this in later cuts of the film, but there is a, a, a fake commercial kind of like from, you know, something from RoboCop or Total Recall mm-hmm. for something called Psychic Chef. Okay. It just pops up in the middle of the film, and it's completely bonkers. Like, if, for anyone out there who's a fan of the film Mandy, it's, um, it's Cheddar Goblin-esque in uh-huh. its ridiculousness. Uh, and so it's one of the, the definite – pros to checking out a more recent cut of Highlander 2.
1: I would say another huge highlight of the film is the villain Michael Ironside oh uh, yes he's, he's this uh, guy from planet Zeist who is their enemy who eventually gets tired of waiting on Christoph Lambert to just die on earth and, uh, and he like goes there to fight him yes uh, and he you know there's the expression chewing the scenery but Michael Ironside in this is not really che- he's like a shark you know the way shark teeth are just always coming out in the things they bite so he's leaving his teeth all over the scenery
0: yeah it's very He's like skull far forward scanners esque acting for Michael Ironside. Uh, I, I, I saw an interview with him where he he basically said, yeah, um, I wasn't a fan of the script. The production was uh, was kind of a wreck. But I decided like if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna be the most memorable thing in the film. I'm just gonna go com- you know com- completely uh, you know crank it up to eleven on the scene chewing. Uh, so yeah, he's a tre- he's a tremendous amount of fun. Anytime he's on the screen, you can't help but uh, but uh, invest yourself in uh, what he's doing.
1: Oh, wait. We haven't even mentioned yet the sci-fi premise of the m- movie,
0: have we? No, we haven't. The- and this will be something that we'll discuss uh, uh, later on in a little more depth. Uh, because one of the ideas here is that what what does Connor do with the prize?
1: Right. So he's got this great power and wisdom after cutting off all the other Zeistian heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find out that they are from Zeist the heads. What does he do with it? Well, apparently he becomes like an atmospheric or geoscientist of some kind.
0: Yeah, or at least he uses his psychic powers to connect important people who are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, he ends up bringing them together to solve the problem of uh, Earth's uh, depleted ozone layer. Yeah. And ends up uh, founding the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation, which uh, creates these enormous machines that beam some sort of energy up into the stratosphere and create an artificial – ozone layer of sorts, like an energy layer that protects uh, the earth from UV rays, but also makes everything, makes the whole world like permanent Casablanca uh, climate. So everything is dark and everything is sweaty
1: everywhere all over the earth. It's a perfect way to justify your like dark noir sets.
0: Yeah, and it does create this. You can see where they were going with this idea of like Connor's this was the savior, but now he's he's vilified. You know, uh, which is a an, an interesting trope. You know, that's right. sometimes rolled out. You see shades of that certainly in uh, in the Dune saga. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, so now he's this guy that people curse because, yeah, you saved the planet from uh, from its uh, its ozone problem, but then you replaced it with this weird thing that nobody likes. I hate
1: sweating. I'd rather be burned alive by UV rays. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so that's the sci-fi noir world uh, that the, the bulk of
1: Highlander 2 deals with. OK, well, now that we have described perhaps the most awesome bad movie of all time, like would you say for me, it's like a top five all-time bad film?
0: Yeah, it's pretty great, I and mean, we don't even have time to get into all the ways that it is it is bad, and all the ways that it's 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 ultimately fun to watch. But uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's not a good film by anybody's standard.
1: But hey, if you can get you one of those uh, pristine VHS tapes that's got the original cut, I highly recommend it if you're a fan and you want to treat yourself to a brain cell funeral. Um, <laughs> Now we should take a quick break and then when we come back let's start to discuss the science of Highlander 2. All right, we're back. Yes, we're going to do it. We're going to uh, we're going to reach into
0: the the corpse of this movie. Uh, we're going to pull back the ribs and wrench out some juicy um, you know moist portions of actual science to discuss.
1: Wow, where did that description come from? That was I'm riveted now. I got to see what we're gonna do. Okay, so the first thing that I think we should mention is the weirdness of using the the idea. I guess this this maybe does go into the first movie. I don't recall the use of the phrase "the quickening," mm-hmm. uh, which is the subtitle of the film, "A Highlander Two: Colon the Quickening." And the quickening. What is it? What happens when the quickening is on screen?
0: Are you referring to the, uh, you know, what happens after they, one of them cuts the other's heads off? Yeah, that seems to be what it's referring to. Right. The, the, I think there's something in the first film where... Uh, Ramirez is encouraging him to like feel the quickening by watching an elk run or something like that. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, for the most part, the quickening is this this explosive transfer of magical electronic energy and or animated demons Uh from the body of the deceased immortal into the body of the living immortal.
1: Yeah, it seems to be what happens when one Zeistian cuts another Zeistian's head off Mm -hmm. and then suddenly there are just lots of sparks and explosions and electrical arcs And the decapitator receives all of the power and wisdom of the decapitatee.
0: Yes, it is, uh, I would say, unapologetically orgasmic. Uh, (laughs) Right. It is is a a, a pyrotechnic orgasm on the screen every time this occurs.
1: But uh, we we should mention, I guess, the, the idea that the quickening is actually a term that already had historically relevant meaning. Uh, like to, I, I want to quote a section from a 2015 article in Slate by the journalist Ruth Graham about the idea of the quickening. Quote, May 27th, 1537 was a momentous day for Jane Seymour, the third wife of Henry VIII. She had been pregnant for some months, but now it was official. Seymour had felt the quickening, the child's first kick in her womb. The milestone was announced to much rejoicing in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, with bonfires throughout the city and celebratory wine distributed to the poor. At Oxford, a preacher delivered a sermon to mark the occasion, Quote, "'Upon Trinity Sunday, like one given of God, the child quickened in the mother's womb.'" The assembled worshipers praised God and prayed that the new baby would be a prince. Of the universe? Uh, I I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) I mean, if you're going to be a prince of England at the time, you might as well consider yourself a prince of the universe, right? No no need to undersell. Yeah. But why all of this hubbub about the fact that Jane Seymour had felt a kick – uh, so the quickening literally means when a pregnant woman first feels a kick or a movement from the developing fetus. And the root of this word in English is the word quick, meaning alive. Like, you know, the phrase, the quick and the dead, that's not just a movie title. It's a phrase from, uh, from the New Testament. It's from 2 Timothy. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. So it means judging the living and the dead. So while today the moment of the quickening is not really invested with any particular biological significance, it used to be considered very important legally, morally, religiously, like – Aristotle wrote that the moment of the quickening was the moment that the fetus became animated or became alive and many w- would go on to interpret this like especially in a lot of Christian traditions as the moment that the fetus received a soul or became alive.
0: Oh, all right. Well, in that I can see where we could get to the to the idea of what's happening with the immortals. Yeah.
1: They are absorbing a soul. Exactly. And and so for this reason like the quickening had very Weird legal status, especially for us to read back on now, like Graham writes, for example, about a precedent in English law where if a pregnant woman was condemned to death, like she had to be executed, she could be executed if she had not yet felt the quickening, but she would be given a delay of sentence if she had felt the quickening. Hmm.
0: I can't help but imagine like uh, Ramirez as a, as a lawyer then defending Connor in court. <laughs> right. Your honor, my uh, client only absorbed the quickening <laughs> after he knocked the futuristic assassin off the train and then the train ran over his neck. So I would argue that this was a case of accidental quickening.
1: <laughs> yeah, anyway, this makes a kind of odd choice of terms though for for a movie about like alien swordsmen cutting off each other's heads like Uh, I guess the idea of receiving a soul or receiving a life essence at a certain moment, Mm -hmm. like, that could be in there. Also, I don't know if it's just a coincidence. Maybe, like, he just independently, whoever the writer was, arrived at the – the idea of the quickening after thinking about the word quick, meaning living living essence or something. Yeah, I, don't know. I mean,
0: you got to call it something, right? You, you, maybe for a while they just re- referred to it as the sparky, explodey, uh, post-decapitation brain orgasm. I don't know. Uh,
1: quickening rolls off the tongue a little easier. The decapagasming. Yes. <laughs> the decephalizagasming.
0: <laughs> now – I want to talk a little bit about just the idea of immortality and mortality. Okay. Uh, and we've we've covered aspects of this on the show before. We did a two-parter uh, um, in the last year, I believe, about the the desire for immortality.
1: Yeah, and where we talked about, like, what is the biological reality about why animals age? Mm-hmm why do animals grow old and die? Like, why don't, you know, why don't our our bodies just have us live forever? And the answer to that is generally that there's what's sort of known as antagonistic pleiotropies. There are, forces within the genome that are driving fitness in multiple different directions. And it just turns out that nature doesn't see a whole lot of advantage in extending human lifespans over a long period of time. And so when there's a gene that, say, like maybe prevents cancer when you're young Mm -hmm. but also happens to lead to deterioration of the body and death of of old age later on – Natural selection doesn't care a whole lot about the old age. It cares more about preventing cancer when you're young. So it just selects for that and rarely sees what happens in old age because there's a lot of natural mortality throughout the span of a life anyway.
0: Right. So it, it's – on one level, it's difficult to come up with an argument for for how a biologically immortal creature would work within a given um, – Uh, environment. Uh, However, we do have a few possible examples, Uh, the main one being that of the hydra, uh, the real world hydra, not the mythical hydra. Mm. Um, uh, Because, uh, you know, these are hardy regenerative uh, uh, creatures that evolved to thrive in in harsh warlike environments, perhaps uh, not unlike our our planet Zeist, where it seems like we are, are... uh, our all-male species uh, of uh, of immortal swordsmen uh, are in a constant state of war. Uh, so maybe we can compare them to the Hydra a little bit.
1: Yeah, Hy- Hydrazoa
0: Zeistianum. Yeah. <laughs> And it's worth noting that uh, that even with um, biologically immortal or, or you know, possibly biological immortal organisms, they still live in a dangerous world that will inevitably kill them. Mm-hmm. Like nobody's saying, oh, hydras live forever. No, hydras still don't live tremendously long. Uh, be, they'll die for any number of reasons. Uh, but there have, been, um, th- there have been experimental observations that have... Um, have shown that in in, in certain lab uh, situations they live far longer than we thought, and they don't appear to age. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, we could maybe look to uh, some parallels there for our, uh, our our fictional magical swordsman from another planet. Um, you know, the, uh, that's, this is the, the basic uh, pitch behind uh, the biologically immortal Idirians, uh, 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 an alien, fictional alien species in the culture novels by Ian e. M. Banks, that mm. I've, I've mentioned pr- probably several times on the show uh, by this point. And the idea is that they emerged in a very competitive, very harsh environment that they ultimately ended up mastering, uh, but they retained this biological immortality as being just a, a part of their their physiology.
1: Now, it's hard to say for sure, but it makes me – I mean, I tend to think that wherever you are, you'd probably have, even on an alien planet, some similar natural selection forces Mm -hmm. at play. uh, As long as you had the same basic uh, principles of evolution working, you probably wouldn't have many large organisms having any kind of mechanism that favored immortality just because – Much like on Earth, there wouldn't be much reason for natural selection to select it.
0: Now, the other big possibility, and this is probably the more likely possibility if we're trying to come up with a reason that the immortals of Zeist are indeed immortal, is that perhaps they engineered it. Uh, because certainly they just seem to be running around the desert, fighting with swords and using some sort of guns. I can't remember if they're laser. Oh, yeah. Laser of, guns. Yeah. yeah. So they have some uh, advanced technology and they have the technology to either s- uh, exile individuals to another planet mm-hmm. or to the f- to the distant future. So – it doesn't seem impossible that they would have also figured out a, a way to make themselves biologically immortal um or technologically immortal technologically immortal uh, or artificially so at any rate it's also worth noting, again, that there are no female immortals that we see in
1: Highlander Two. I tend to think this has more to do with just sort of like sexist envisioning of story tropes than yeah. to do with the their biological ideas about Zeist, or they
0: reproduce uh, via asexual budding, like the Hydra.
1: That's true. Okay. You know, we
0: never, we don't see, we, we never see a scene where Sean Connery buds additional Sean Connerys. Uh-huh. But who knows.
1: Well, I mean, I would point out that you could very well say the Highlander films are buddy films. The, oh yeah, uh, Christophe Lambert and Sean Connery. I mean, if that's that, they should have had their own buddy cop series. Chief says I'm taking it too personal. <laughs> no Highlander, we've got to stop him. Hey, I'm sold. That would that would have been great. Though can you be a buddy cop without budding? I, I don't know. I, it's <laughs> several others. Riggs and Murtaugh manage it. All right. Well, let's let's move on to decapitation.
0: What do you have for us in the way of decapitation science? Sure.
1: Well, I was wondering, you know, is there an animal that does the Zeist thing, that does the immortal thing, that wanders the earth in search of combat with enemies who can supply it with the quickening if and only if it kills them by decapitation. And I, you know, at first I was like coming up with a blank. I was like, no, nah, I don't think there's really anything like that out there. Actually, decapitation just does not seem very common in the animal kingdom.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's it's one of those things that happens all the time in movies and I, I believe is it appears easier to do in films. <laughs> um but you're really having to you're having to cut through a lot of uh, material there. And to what end if you're an animal?
1: right. What's the point? Normally, if you're an animal, you're not like trying to make your enemy or your prey like get a quick death as if it's like a, you know a judicial execution or right. something. It's not the guillotine here. You're trying to eat them or you're trying to fight them off or something. But as always, as always, nature is weirder than fiction. So I present for your consideration an insect, a Highlander insect. It is a genus. A forid fly, known scientifically as pseudacteon. Now, I was wondering what this means. Like, false pseudo means false, so mm-hmm. false acteon. Uh, acteon is a figure from Greek myth who was a herdsman who got torn apart by his own hounds.
0: Oh yes, uh, there are some paintings that depict this.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what significance that has there. Maybe Acteon is another type of fly or animal that it's like a maybe a false mimic of in outward appearance. I, I couldn't figure that out, but. Despite the scientific name, I will propose hereafter we call it either – I don't know. We can pick from a few. The Highlander fly, the Zeist fly or maybe the Quickening fly or if you can think of a better one, I'm still open.
0: The Connor McFly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, A little back to the future bridge there. So here's how it goes. You've got these flies from the family Foridae, and they're they're pretty familiar to us. We can see them buzzing around food sources as pests. We often mistakenly call them fruit flies. They're not fruit flies. But the genus Pseudaction is different. These flies are parasitoids, they're reproductive parasites that attack ants, especially ants in the genus Solenopsis, which includes the invasive red fire ant Solenopsis invicta, which we've talked about plenty on the show before, and the black imported fire ant Solenopsis rictieri. So species of this fly can be found throughout the world, but in the, the United States, you'll mainly find them, I think, in the southeast, like uh, Texas through the deep south and Florida and those areas. And the process of their parasitism is amazing. Robert, I've included some images for you to look at as we go along here. So feel free to comment, uh, sharing with the listeners in any, any color that strikes you here. But- yeah, absolutely. Uh, So first of all, you've you got a female pseudaction or, or highlander fly. She mates. And so now she's got fertilized eggs. And what she does is she will find a fire ant of the particular species that she can parasitize. So certain species of this genus of fly attack generally a certain species of ant. And so she'll find the right kind of ant and she'll fly around above groups of worker ants during their foraging behavior – and then suddenly, when the time is right, she swoops down and stabs one of the ants with her external ovipositor. Uh, and I've got some close-up micrographs of these ovipositors for you to look at, Robert. They, I love these things because they look so metal. They're straight out of like a Mortal Kombat game. Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: one of them in particular uh, does remind me a bit of the Kurgan's sword from the first Highlander
1: film. Oh, yeah? yeah. I forget what that looks like. Oh, it's kind of got claws on it, yeah. doesn't it? mm-hmm. So I guess she's – this is kind of the sword fight portion. She is like the Kurgan. She flies in with the sword and stabs uh, instead of immediately decapitating, but we're getting there. So then with the ovipositor, she injects an egg into the ant's thorax and the egg develops within the ant and then the larva hatches. And from here, the larva travels into the ant's head and waits there, uh, consuming material inside the ant's head. It consumes hemolymph, and hemolymph is the invertebrate equivalent of blood. So imagine this thing basically going inside your head and then sitting there and drinking your blood. Uh, But it also – over time, eats the ant's brain. And this uh, causes the ant, I've read in reports, to kind of wander around zombie-like. This is, of course, not the only parasite that mm-hmm. can uh, uh, affect an ant's nervous system and, and cause it to wander around in, in strange zombie-like behavior. But it did make me wonder, so when does the ant first feel the quickening inside its own head? Oh, I don't know. That's a tough one. We'll come back to it then. So anyway, when it's time for the larva to pupate, it secretes an enzyme that dissolves the connective membrane of the ant's exoskeleton, particularly at the site where the ant's head connects to its thorax. Basically, it is externally digesting the ant's neck. And while that enzyme is doing its work, the larva continues to eat the stuff inside the ant's head, and then the ant's head falls off. <laughs> so that here is the decapitation, ant's head off, the larva is inside it. So then the larva inside the severed head shoves the ant's mouth parts out of the severed head. And the fly pupa extends to fill different cavities in the ant head, especially like it extends to fill in the oral cavity with part of its plate. And then uh, it sends out a couple of spikes that stabs these spikes out through the sides of the ant head. And these are respiratory horns, like breathing tubes. And then after maybe like two to four or two to six weeks, an adult fly will just burst out of the ant head like, you know, hello, there can be (laughs) only one and i've got a, i've got a picture of it bursting out here down below and i must say this little larva popping out of the ant head like a smashed pumpkin is so cute it's got ah. huge eyes it's got little little wiggly things i don't know what those are
0: yeah, it's just kind of like busting out of the face. Uh-huh. Imagine if like just a, a like a baby crawled out of your face.
1: Right. I, did they ever go there in the sequels to the Alien franchise later in Alien movies where they're face bursters? No,
0: but I believe one of those Peter Jackson uh, early gore fest films of his, there's a scene where like a baby, like an evil zombie baby rips its way out of an old lady's face, I think. Sick. Yeah. Yeah. By all accounts, sick indeed.
1: You know, maybe it takes a kind of dark sense of humor to appreciate this, but I see when there's one photo where the uh, the ant's head has fallen off of its body, and it appears that the ant is sort of like feeling around for its head with its forelimbs, like "Where did my head go?"
0: Oh, this reminds me once again of the oh, uh, certainly there are lots of cartoons where peak. People's heads come off, and they, you know, they reach around for them. Mm-hmm. But the firies, uh, uh in Labyrinth, the uh, the nightmare,ic uh, uh, orange creatures mm-hmm. who uh, take their own heads and limbs off and throw them around, and, and uh, mix and match them, mm-hmm. and want to do the same thing to uh, uh, to us, uh, to, uh, to to our uh, our protagonist. Uh, yeah, those are those are some nightmare creatures for sure.
1: You know, I got to go back and watch Labyrinth again. It's been so long. I barely remember it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite
0: good. It's a classic. I mean, it's no Highlander 2. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have a Queen soundtrack? Uh, no, but it has a David Bowie soundtrack. Oh, OK. I think that I think that, that suffices.
1: But anyway, uh, so back to the Highlander flies, the pseudacteon. So these flies have actually been deployed intentionally in some areas for invasive fire ant control. So it's kind of like if you had a problem with invasive Michael Ironside populations and they're mm-hmm. ravaging your local ecosystem. What do you do? Well, you release a population of Christophe Lambert's to keep it in check, going out and decapitating all of your invasive— of Michael Ironsides. And this works out because the specifics of at least some species of the Pseudacteon make them unlikely to be a human pest. Like they do not seem to be attracted to the kinds of things that normally make a fly a pest. They're not really attracted to carrion, feces, uh, fruits, or human foods. So it's more challenging to trigger the gathering here, is what you're saying? I guess so, yeah. How do you get them all in the same place? I guess you just gather a lot of fire ants. Another thing that's funny I found, uh, I guess because of this potential to act as like pest control, uh, when you Google this genus, you will find hits for posts like, where can I buy ant decapitating flies? (laughs) (laughs) They're like international suppliers who will ship to you or what? Uh, another random but maybe interesting fact, apparently the sex of the emerging Highlander fly will be determined by the size of the ant head that gets cut off. Hmm. So you cut off a bigger ant head, you get a female fly. You cut off a smaller ant head, you get a male fly.
0: Oh, wow. So it's like the the, the older the immortal, you know, the more quickenings
1: within them, the more room for growth. I'm reaching, but
0: <laughs> I'm trying to continue the connection here.
1: No, I admire your, your dedication. Uh, by the way, if you want to read more, the University of Florida Entomology Department website has a great page with references on the, the Sudacteon genus. Uh, it's, it's a wild ride. All right. We're going to take one more break. And
0: when we come back, we're going to talk about the ozone layer. All right, we're back. So, as we discussed earlier, one of the major uh, um, plot elements in *Highlander 2* is the idea that uh, the Earth's ozone layer was uh, was terribly depleted, and Connor McLeod uh, founded the Shield Corporation, which. Which uh, created these enormous, like uh, uh, you know, sci-fi energy. Um, They're pyramids, pyramids, yeah. yeah, that are shooting some sort of beam up into the sky and creating an artificial ozone layer, an artificial shield uh-huh. that is protecting the Earth against harmful uh, UV rays.
1: But it makes everything like dark and humid. Except, I must say, this does not actually apply in every scene. Like when you show the scenes with Sean Connery in Scotland.
0: Oh, Scotland's fine. Everything.
1: <laughs> Looks normal,
0: <laughs> Almost, but, <laughs> which is which is generally so not what you'd expect
1: from Scotland, right? Right. Um, but yeah, so the world is all dark and humid, and in, it's a classic case of like the heroic character who does something to save the world and is totally unappreciated. Everybody hates him for it. There's a scene where uh, where Christopher Lambert in old man makeup is like at a bar getting a drink, and this angry lady in a polka dot dress runs up to him and tries to hit him, and is like, "You filthy!" with that puke.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about the puke in the sky. Um, Let's talk about the ozone layer. So first of all, ozone or trioxygen is an inorganic molecule. And uh, on the surface of the planet, it's a pale blue gas and it's a pollutant. Uh, but most of the Earth's ozone isn't down here. 90% of it is up in the stratosphere, uh, 10 to 30 miles, 16 to 48 kilometers above the surface. It's just a small part of the atmosphere up there. and it, It's mostly oxygen and nitrogen. Uh, but, uh, but in the stratosphere, it blocks the worst and most energetic ultraviolet light wavelengths, namely UVC and UVB. Uh, these uh, these particles absorb the UV waves and heat up, as does the oxygen. And for this reason, the stratosphere uh, heats up the higher that you go. So temperatures uh, uh, increase from an average of negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 51 degrees Celsius uh, at the tropopods to a maximum of about 5 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 15 degrees Celsius at the top of the stratosphere.
1: And that's because of the ozone being bombarded by the UV radiation from space. Right. And so it plays an important role. It is a shield. The
0: ozone layer is a shield. and it's especially important to us mortals down here or, or, you know, life itself.
1: Now, when I was a little kid, I remember the depletion of the ozone layer being essentially like the biggest environmental issue. I remember that from like the late 80s and early 90s.
0: Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that is what this film is coming out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is reflected in this film's themes. So in the late 1970s, scientists realized that ozone levels over Antarctica were dropping. Record low levels were occurring every spring. In 1985, they figured out why. It was due to the release of uh, chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs in the atmosphere. And these chemical compounds were things that we were using them in, in air conditioning, aerosol spray cans, cleaning products, and the manufacture of things like styrofoam.
1: Right, and I believe specifically it was the chlorine component of the chlorofluorocarbons that was uh, especially damaging to ozone levels because it, it would the the CFCs would go up in the atmosphere and then the chlorine ions would come off of them and bond with other molecules and it would eventually lead to ozone depletion.
0: That's right. Yeah, the
1: CFCs were drifting up into the stratosphere
0: and then the CFCs would be broken apart by UV radiation, releasing the chlorine. Now, it was only popping up in the spring because there are seasonal factors that uh, influence ozone levels over the Antarctic. So it was really only popping up during that one period of time. And the Arctic wasn't affected uh, due to uh, fewer icy clouds and other climate factors. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a dystopian version of this story. Uh, there's a dystopian timeline extending uh, from the 1980s. Uh, ultimately, a fiction, and it doesn't involve immortal swordsmen at all. No, uh, it was partially foreseen in the 1980s, and then in 2009, uh, Goddard Space Flight Center scientist Paul Newman uh, ran some computer simulations to see what would have happened. What what kind of what what might we have seen? If we had done absolutely nothing, if there'd been uh, no uh, uh, concerted efforts to to do something about the depleted ozone layer, if there'd been no Connor McLeod, what would the future have been like? And according to Newman's modeling, if humans had done nothing about it, if we'd stubbornly continued pumping these CFCs into the atmosphere – uh, uh, he, he said that, uh, we'd find ourselves ultimately in the year 2065, by the way, Highlander two takes place in 2024. Oh man. What's going to happen when we get there? <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, 2065, uh, with two thirds of the earth's ozone layer gone, uh-huh. we'd have a permanent ozone hole over the Antarctic and the Arctic. And UV radiation in mid-latitude cities like Washington, D.C. would be enough to give you a sunburn in a mere five minutes of exposure. Whoa. DNA-mutating UV radiation levels would be up 650%, uh, greatly increasing cancer rates and impacting numerous organisms.
1: Yeah, I imagine that would, that would uh, really hurt the environment and ecosystems too. Yeah. And, and indeed this is this
0: is the the sort of dystopian world we we kind of see reflected in in Highlander 2 you know and we the the, the 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 fear of this world right and yet somehow humanity avoided this right Uh, As if a psychic French Scotsman (laughs) unified our minds uh, and and caused 70 countries to come together and enact the Montreal Protocol, which is what happened in 1986, mind you, the year
1: that Highlander 1 came out. Oh, okay. There's
0: absolutely no connection between the two, but it did occur in 1986.
1: So there actually was a a massive effort, kind of like Connor McLeod's shield, except instead of putting a barrier in place, what they were trying to do was stop harming the ozone layer to be... Begin
0: with. Right. The scientists presented the case and they said, look, here's the evidence. And it is, it's CFCs that are doing it. If we stop producing CFCs or we at least, you know, tighten down our regulations of CFCs, We can stop this process. And so uh, they set some goals, uh, reduce CFC production by 20 percent by 93, 50 percent by 98. And the targets were subsequently strengthened, banning the worst CFC offenders by 1996 and stiffly regulating them. And as it stands today, the ozone layer is recovering and should fully recover by 2065.
1: Yeah, and I should point out we're actually now seeing direct evidence of uh, of the recovery of the ozone layer hole over the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. like uh, I was looking at a 2018 NASA press release about this direct evidence and there was a measuring instrument called the Microwave Limb Sounder, MLS aboard the Aura satellite. that was used to measure ozone depletion levels and uh, or measure chlorine, I think. And it showed from 2005 to 2018, there was a net of about 20% reduction of ozone depletion. So it is actually recovering. Things are getting better and we know this directly now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately an inspiring success story. It's, uh, you know, it's not one-to-one with the problem of uh, human-caused climate change, but it demonstrates our potential to enact change based on our on sound scientific consensus, to, to change the, the way we're approaching the world, to cut back on what we're doing to it and, and see some recovery take place. Like, it, it can be done, people. We've done it
1: before. <laughs> It just makes me worry what would have happened if there had been as much money behind attacking that scientific consensus as there is on the consensus about climate change.
0: Right. Yeah. Or if it, it had been like, uh, politicized to the yeah. extent that uh, that climate change has, has unfortunately been politicized.
1: We could be living in a world of hurt right now.
0: Yeah. All right. So so speaking of a world of hurt. Okay. So all of this uh, squares rather nicely with what we see in Highlander, too, okay. Uh, you know, clearly again, it was this this story emerged from this time of great concern over the ozone layer.
1: You can see where the idea
0: for the movie came from exactly. So because, you know, faced with environmental challenges, Connor decided to do something about it, uh, partially preventing the dystopian vision we related earlier. Uh, and at the same time, the movie deals with the self-healing nature of the ozone layer because there's this whole uh, – we didn't even really get into this, but there's a there are some freedom fighters who believe that the shield corporation doesn't need to exist anymore, that the ozone layer has fixed itself and mm-hmm. that the shields are just keeping us in this permanent noir world for no reason. And uh, and it turns out that that's the case, right? That the, the Shield
1: Corporation is evil now and must be stopped. Like Virginia Madsen plays a scientist and eco terrorist who believes that the ozone levels are normal, and, right? Uh, and that we need we no longer need the shield.
0: Yeah. So it would seem that Connor also managed to ban CFCs, uh, <laughs> as well as creating this artificial shield. Um, but uh, but but it did make me wonder what could we do you know, with an artificial ozone layer? Like what sort of is there any research out there uh, about about how we might uh, you know fix it? If is there anything like the shield that we see in Highlander
1: Two uh, in scientific literature? Well, I mean you see this kind of reaction to certain th- like uh, you often hear people say about climate change like well. It would just be too hard to get people to stop burning fossil fuels and releasing all this carbon into the atmosphere. What we need to do instead is focus all of our scientific efforts on uh, coming up with ways to, like, counteract climate right. change. There is geohacking geo-hacking scheme. I would say based on what I've read – Do not put all your hope in this. Like, if you want a good way to deal with the climate change issue, you should be thinking about reducing emissions, not depending on some savior technology to come along and geoengineer the world back to good health.
0: And yet, knowing you know, knowing scientists, I figured, well, somebody has surely, surely, somebody presented some sort of geo hacking measure for ozone layer
1: depletion. Why stop cutting ourselves when we can invent a really good band aid?
0: Well, you know, but I mean, certainly there's a value in sort of in, – in the scientific exploration of alternative oh, sure. measures as well.
1: Yeah, having, having a plan B is worthwhile. So I hunted around and I found the work
0: of um, a, a Russian physicist by the name of Alexander uh, Gurvek, uh, born 1930, presumably still alive based on uh, what I could gather. And he proposed uh, this idea in 1980. Um, the the idea of uh, of generating an artificial ozone layer, or AOL, as, as he <laughs> refers to it, uh, but then in later papers he refers to it as an artificially ionized region, or an AIR. Mm-hmm. He's an interesting uh, guy. He argued uh, that uh, among the various high-energy proposals to deal with ozone layer loss, quote, the most promising approach is connected with the creation of an artificial ionized region in the atmosphere by microwave discharges.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's funny because in the movie, you see like a big pyramid that's like shooting some beam of energy into the sky. It doesn't say what that is. Presumably, it could be microwaves, though I guess it's visible in the movie, and microwaves wouldn't be visible.
0: Yeah, what I'm about to explain here do, does not match up with what we see in the film, but uh-huh. you can see where, for instance, the screenwriter might have read about it, like might have read something in, say, Popular Science, uh-huh. uh, like a blurb about this uh, paper, and then used that. Uh, in the screenplay, huh. so he wrote about this numerous times uh, during his career, and uh, and even carried out a few experiments to sort of present how it would work. Uh, and he argues that it's possible in principle, but would be difficult and would require a lot more development. Certainly to reach uh, you know the level that we could actually uh, counter uh, ozone depletion. Uh, but the basic idea here uh, beh- behind his, uh, his, his notion is that ozone normally forms in the stratosphere via the combination of atomic oxygen with molecular oxygen by solar radiation, which, of course, also destroys ozone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, the solar radiation causes a triple collision. Uh, And so Gurevac proposed beefing up ozone creation by the use of microwave radiation. And he points out that there are three key reasons to depend on microwaves in this kind of scenario. First of all, the energy can be transferred for considerable distances in the air almost without losses because you're going to want to beam it up to the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, the energy can be focused in the given region of the atmosphere to achieve the necessary effect. And then three, different regimes of the microwave source can be used, which gives the opportunity to achieve the necessary optimum conditions. So the idea here is to create an artificially ionized region or air rather than a shield. And while you could localize the effect, you know, point out to a, a pointing at a particular area in the stratosphere, the ozone you create would then spread around due to winds and turbulent uh, uh, diff- diffusion up in the stratosphere. So he continued to, to to work on this idea well up into the two thousands. Uh, uh, it's it's a, again as far as I understand it, and, a, and certainly a lot of the, the paper I was looking at consisted of equations and uh, right. and uh, you know breakdowns of what's happening uh, would be happening happening at a molecular level. But uh, are but, you saying that you're not an atmospheric physicist? <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, in, in this discussion of Highlander two, I have to reveal that, but. Um, But yeah, basically the idea is that this would be a way to produce more ozone to make up for ozone depletion. Uh And uh, he he makes what seems to be a strong case that, that we could conceivably
1: do it. You can certainly see the kind of uh, thinking that would lead to this contingency. I'm glad we didn't have to depend on this. Exactly, yeah. We're very fortunate that we put in place protocols to just allow the atmosphere or the uh, the ozone layer to fix itself naturally. I mean, one reason is maybe it's just uh, Highlander 2 working on my brain, but I always do worry about – all these proposed massive geoengineering projects that say, you know, we're going to do X, Y, or Z with Earth's mm-hmm. atmosphere, like the idea of um, counteracting climate change by injecting sulfate particles into the atmosphere or yeah. something like that to reflect, you know, the, so <laughs> I I don't know what the scientific consensus is on how effective that would actually be or, or whether it's a good idea. I tend to suspect that it doesn't have a lot of support. But just the idea of trying things like that on the one earth we have seems very scary.
0: Absolutely. Now, at the same time, if we if we could do something like the shield that we see in Highlander 2, mm-hmm. that would, of course, be tremendously helpful, especially as we consider the possibility of one day um, sending people to other worlds and mm-hmm. setting up, uh, uh, you know, colonies there. Like, if you if you had ah. the technology to create a radiation blocking shield, mm-hmm. you know, install that thing on Mars, right, uh, install yeah. that thing on the moon, install it anywhere you need to uh, try and house people off the planet.
1: Yeah. Have like a portable shield kit that goes with you wherever you go.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in that regard, this sci-fi tech, I mean, sci-fi technology always has a lot of, uh, of advantages, right? Because <laughs> you don't actually have to develop it. Right. It's just, it's there. It's ready to go. Uh, but uh, but certainly if we could if we could pull something off like we see in the film it would it would be tremendously useful to say nothing of hoverboards which are also in <laughs> Highlander too
1: you know I always wonder about like what is the what is the cost benefit thing of of talking a lot about like you know, geoengineering contingencies for what if we we've got some massive environmental problem that that could really harm human human civilization uh, if we don't stop doing X. And meanwhile, we've got some people working on Y, saying maybe possibly Y could protect us if we don't stop doing X. Does talking about the potential geoengineering solution or whatever like reduce people's incentive to, say, stop producing chlorofluorocarbons or stop producing carbon emissions? Like, I don't know the answer. But. Well,
0: I don't know. I'm always – I'm continually perplexed by this because it's it's one of these things where you see humanity's potential, uh, you know, confounding potential to both refuse to change and be and and still be open to dramatic change. Yeah, like the kind of the, the kind of human will that is that, that very reasonably would think, well, I don't want to get rid of my hairspray, but I I guess I might be open to the entire world being clothed in sweaty darkness all the time. <laughs> yeah, I could I could change, I could get used to that, but like but I'm totally not going to budge on this other issue.
1: It's the it's the change of right now versus the change of years from now.
0: Yeah, and we see this on a personal level all, all the time too. Like you could imagine someone thinking, "Well, I really I know my doctor told me I, I need to change my diet, but sorry, i'm not I'm not going to do that. But maybe I'll start running every day. and then that'll counterbalance the crap that I eat. You know, like, or we, we maybe, engage in these exercises on an individual level all the time.
1: Very similar to that. Like somebody thinks, well, my doctor told me I need to change my day. But maybe in 10 years, <laughs> doctors will come up with a pill that I can just take to make me healthy. And that'll be – that." that's kind of like the shield option, right? Yeah. You've got a, a sort of like counteracting contingency that you're just really crossing your fingers for. And But, I, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's not a good idea. Right.
0: Yeah, I'm, I mean, medical technology, technology in general continues to, uh, to advance often in, in, in very, uh, you know, at a very alarming rate. But you, you absolutely can't book on it, you know. <laughs> you can't say, well, I'm sure somebody will figure it out. I'm just going to keep along this path and we'll see what happens. Maybe, maybe someone will come up with a magical shield to protect the planet and, uh, and protecting it, I mean, protect it from us.
1: Maybe, but don't count on it. Just regulate the dang hairspray. I mean, (laughs) come on.
0: Yeah. Now that I think about it, Highlander 2 really does have a a mangled environmental message. Like what? (laughs) It's not really – I guess it's not really trying to say anything. I I should not even try to to, to decipher what it might be saying about uh, environmentalism. But
1: it's otherwise so lucid. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, Robert, I'm glad we finally did it. This is an episode on one of the best bad movies of all time. And if you have never seen the original Highlander 2, you can find yourself – I don't know how's the best way to find yourself a copy of the original cut because I don't think you can get it in the United States at least. We had
0: to depend on your VHS copy for for us to watch it. And then like I said, the version I watched on Amazon Prime last month – uh, is is a different cut of the film. Yeah, I mean it's still enjoyable in some respects. You still get to see that you know the visual flair of the director is still very much uh, on the screen.
1: But no Zeist. It's less manically incoherent.
0: Yeah. yeah, they they remix things in an attempt to give it more um, coherence, but I'm not sure it really succeeds. Uh, but hey. Uh, if nothing else you still get that cool sword fight in the in, in the you know the city with the train and the the, the flying punks on their, uh, their, uh, their 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 hoverboards so that's always a win
1: i don't know if we should pat ourselves on the back too much but i think we did a better job of finding good scientific angles on Highlander 2 than i expected we could
0: i know imagine what we could do with a, a real science fiction film uh, <laughs> You know, but, but uh, which brings us back. We did one of these on uh, two thousand and one, a space odyssey, uh-huh. you know, several months back. And now that we've we we've gotten the Highlander two out of the way, I would love to do more of these on a regular basis. Uh, for instance, I've I've wanted to do an episode on the science of the dark crystal for a long time, mm. and uh, I think given uh, developments with Netflix, uh, I think this is the the year to do it
1: maybe we'll have to think about that one.
0: Yeah, a lot of people have said oh do you know do something related to uh, to alien and the xenomorph, uh-huh. uh, you know, obviously there's a lot we could talk about there. So, we would love to hear from all of you out there. If you enjoyed this treatment of uh, of, of film uh, with science, uh, then uh, then let us know what you would like to, us to explore in potential future episodes.
1: If like us, you were a fan of trash cinema and B-movie behemoths, Get in touch. Let us know what's your favorite awesomely bad movie.
0: Likewise, we know that we have some Highlander fans out there. Mm-hmm. So if you have definite thoughts about Highlander 1 and 2, if you have thoughts about all the various other films and TV shows, most of which I have not seen, uh, we would love uh, for you to, to, to bring us up to speed on the Highlander universe.
1: Quoth Lambert, nevermore. <laughs>
0: All right. So, in the meantime, check out stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the show. You'll also find links out to our various social media accounts there. Uh, if you're on Facebook, why don't you join our Facebook group? It's Stuff to Blow Your Mind's discussion module. Uh, once you join, you can interact with uh, other listeners, uh, you can interact with us, you can talk about squirrels and Highlander too to your heart's content. And if you want to support the show, well, there are a number of ways to do it. Uh, just spread the word for starters. If you want to buy some merchandise at our little uh, T Publics store, you'll find a link for that on the, on the mothership. And then the best thing you can do is just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And make sure you subscribe to both Stuff to Blow Your Mind and our other show, Invention.
1: Have you not checked out Invention yet? If not... What the heck is wrong with you? Go and check it out. We
0: have a whole episode about the guillotine. It's totally on message with everything we've talked about today.
1: The ultimate anti-Zeistian technology. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so go check out Invention. If you like this show, you'll probably love that show too. Anyway, huge thanks to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at blow the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: I'm sorry.